it's a great issue, for, not just for that assassination, but for future ones, for future ones of anybody even thinking about assassinations, is that, uh, you know, be careful of, of what you wish for, because you can, you, you, might, you might end up uh, getting something a lot worse. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. And today we have Peter Stothard on the show and that's who you heard at the start discussing the potential repercussions of any assassination. And we are discussing with him the assassination of Julius Caesar. Now, we're not confined to the assassination of Julius Caesar on our chat today. And we do mention the sort of looming, obvious presence of Vladimir Putin. And I know many people are are thinking, well, you know, wouldn't life be a lot easier if Putin was bumped off and then we could return to a sort of peaceful world? And the lesson that many assassinations in history and certainly the assassination of Julius Caesar gives is that you don't often get the end result that you hope for. So something to bear in mind. And Peter Stothard is an ideal person to talk about this with us. He is a, obviously he's a classicist, so he's, he's written uh, this book, The Last Assassin, uh, which is what we're talking about. That's all about the assassination of Caesar and then the hunt for the killers of Caesar as they were all um, killed in sometimes rather brutal fashion and he's also written other books that often combine politics with Roman history and so I recommend you check them out there's a very good one called The Senecans, uh, Four Men and Margaret Thatcher and coming up in part two next week we talk a little bit more about his sort of political um, experience when he there is another book he's written and he spent a month with Tony Blair uh, during the uh, Iraq war planning. So we talk a little bit about that. We talk about Russians. That's coming up in part two. There's, there's a sort of Russian theme throughout our discussion of the assassination. And with the events going on in Ukraine, it's, you know, it, it, it's something that we have to address, really. Now, elsewhere on our website... We've got a great piece by Charles Spencer, who's written a book about the White Ship, uh, called The White Ship. And The White Ship was a um, boat, set, a ship, a boat is the wrong terminology, a ship that was carrying the heir to the throne of England, Henry I's son. And it sank just outside the harbour of Harfleur. So I do recommend... It's on our homepage, you can't miss it. Elsewhere, we've got lots of book reviews on our on our website, so you can you can have a look through there, what we've got, our latest reviews, and you can also filter by a period of history you like if you want to look for a book uh, or a subject that interests you. Right, moving on. Again, I've mentioned this before, we've got the unpublished novel competition, I'm boring you now, so I'll only be quick. £500 prize and, and the book gets published, so I recommend that. If you want to get hold of me, you can. You can either do it via email, history at aspectsofhistory.com, or you can get me on the Twitter, 
I'm at Ollie WCQ. But I really hope you enjoy the show. It's a good chat with me and Peter Stothard. So I'll hand you over to me. Peter Stothard, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Good to be here. Right, so we're talking about your... uh, Well, we're we're having this discussion because this is going to go out. um, uh, So listeners will be hearing this around about the Ides of March, the 15th of March. So that's why I wanted to talk to you. You've written a brilliant book, which I've just finished today, actually, the Last Assassin, and this is uh, all about the assassins of Julius Caesar, but obviously it, it uh, starts with the massive event, probably one of the largest, one of the greatest events, certainly of, of, the, of ancient history and, and, and of world history, which was the assassination of Julius Caesar. Um, so I just thought it would help to start with just to do a little bit of background for those listeners who probably aren't aware of Caesar's rise. They know they know he was a great figure, but why why he became a target for the assassins, really? There were a lot of Big reasons. Big question, I know. Well, there were a lot of reasons he became a target for the, for the assassins, but the, the one thing that pulled them all together was that it was essentially political. He was killed by people who were really quite like him. He was killed by a lot of people who were his friends and who were certainly members of the same class as he was. And they were beginning to tolerate. They realised their system wasn't perfect and it was quite difficult to stop a strong man um, becoming stronger than everybody else and um, exercising too much power. So they weren't naive about that. But they feared in, in Caesar's case, that he would, would make himself not only dictator for life, after all his great successes in conquering places, um, obviously Gaul most of all, um, but that he might even start setting up a, a monarchy, you know, that, that you wouldn't just have Caesar, but you might have Caesar's son and Caesar's grandson. And, and that, to a certain kind of Roman, was something that they thought they got rid of when they got rid of their kings many centuries before. There's all sort of faded mythology, really. We don't know much about the kings. We don't really know. But what we do know is that for the Romans of Caesar's time, the idea that someone might want to make themselves a king or anything like a king was a bit of a a red line. And so they felt, or some of them did, uh, that uh, Caesar was getting far too close to uh, to that line. And that if they didn't get rid of him on the Ides of March, uh, 44, uh, BC, uh, he was going to go off and do some conquering in the east, this time instead of the west, and he would come back even stronger, and they would have missed their chance. And so the Ides of March was the, the, the moment where they had to go. And the problem they had, really, was that Caesar was quite popular amongst the people in Rome, wasn't he? And certainly for um, his, his army, he was a popular commander. Absolutely. And the, uh, the, the assassins really got that very, very badly wrong. The assassins were sort of old, they were basically old aristocrats. I mean, Caesar was an aristocrat too, but the, the assassins were mostly of the old school who talked a lot about liberty and how they wanted the you know, traditional checks and balances. But to be honest, were pretty much keep, on keeping their own power 
and keeping the power of their class. And the uh, Caesar was particularly popular with uh, the uh, people of Rome who he'd given a lot of money and uh, free food and lots of, you know, lots of stuff that dictators learned to do to, uh, to make people happy. He'd also, you know, massively made uh, Rome more powerful and, and more opportunities for looting and plundering and all the things that, that, that soldiers and people like and the people back home. So yeah, he was very popular. And also he was, there was a lot of sort of radicals of one kind or another who were genuinely fed up with people like Brutus and Cassius and their mums and dads and their hereditary sort of system and felt that they were, um, you know, that Caesar was sort of on their side. And so, yeah, so, so when they, by the time the Ides of March was over, when the assassins thought that for various reasons, they'd be frightfully popular and uh, because they got rid of the dictator who wanted to be king, they found that actually that wasn't the way that the ordinary people, and certainly not the way that the army saw it at all. So they were very, they were very naive and cut off in one respect. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the very thing they were seeking to, to stop was the very thing that happened in that his adoptive son starts a dynasty that um, lasted many, many years. Yeah, that's a great um, issue, for, not just for that assassination, but for future ones, for future ones, or anybody even thinking about assassinations, is that, uh, you know, be careful of, of what you wish for, because you can, you, you, might, you might end up uh, getting something a lot worse. And certainly the assassins of Julius Caesar, who, who did think a great deal, I'm not saying that they were, they were trivial about, about it. I mean, they thought a great deal about whether they were justified in assassinating him. What would be the, the threshold for that justification? You know, um, what were the principles on which it was okay to kill uh, a dictator? What were the principles on which it wasn't? They were thoughtful. They all would have called themselves philosophers of, of different kinds. So it wasn't that they didn't think about it. If, if anything, they sort of overthought it in terms of for their own success, because the one thing they they didn't do the the opinion polling as it were that they didn't do they did the political theory but they didn't they didn't have a very clear idea of what um, you know what people thought or or would think when they'd done it and, and your book's um, titled the last assassin and the last assassin being the last assassin who was uh, killed and that's Cassius Pomensis now you've mentioned you know many of them were um, will view themselves as philosophers. Now this, the, Cassius Parmensis amongst, uh, amongst some of the others followed um, Epicurus. Mm. What was it about that philosophy that, that, um, that, that sort of helped push them to, to, to the, uh, to the assassination or, or, or did it, you know, what, what was the involvement of the Epicurean and, and the follower Epicurus and their followers in, in the assassination? Well, in one very important sense, of course, it probably kept some of them back from, from killing. Because one of the great principles of Epicurus was that you shouldn't really have anything to do with politics unless it was absolutely necessary. The, the, the aim of the Epicurean was to wall themselves off in a garden, um, look after their wives, their daughters, their slaves. They were very egalitarian within their garden um, and not let the cares of the world and the troubles of the world um, concern themselves too much on the basis that if they did that they would get that perfect peace of mind um, 
ataraxia, they called it. And if you uh, had got that perfect peace of mind, then you would have no fear of death. And it was fear of death that um, created all man's unhappinesses. These are very modern ideas. You can see hints of Freud. You can hear you know, hints of uh, all, you know, all sorts of, um, of modern. So sometimes they sound a bit like sort of a hippie cult. Um, so lots of modern resonances. So they, that's what the Epicureans were. But they, because they were also trained in, in philosophy, they realized that the, up to a certain point, um, this withdrawal wouldn't work. And so um, Gaius Cassius, the um, uh, kinsman of, uh, of Cassius Parmensis, who was the sort of like the number two amongst the assassins and other Epicureans um, came to the conclusion that actually if someone was as bad as uh, Caesar was going to be, uh, or maybe already was, then you weren't entitled to sit, to stay in your garden and just cultivate your peace of mind. I mean, you can imagine sort of someone maybe thinking that, I mean, think about Putin now, I mean, how you, know, you might think in general, you know, the, the, you shouldn't get involved. But if, if someone becomes so bad, and, and can you really have peace of mind when there are people like Julius Caesar or uh, Vladimir Putin around? And, and this was a theoretical argument, you know, at what point did your basic rules have to be abandoned for, for the sake of a higher rule? Um, which was keeping your peace, no one could have peace of mind if Caesar was in charge. And so once, and this was again, quite a theoretical argument. And once they got to that point, then all the Epicurean um, thinkers realized, you know, were able to be persuaded that actually in this particular case, but not in general, they should um, do the quite extraordinary thing of uh, assassinating Julius Caesar. Now I wanted to mention, um... Putin, and I'm glad you have first. So do you see echoes? Because you have Julius Caesar, he feels very secure. He's just uh, won a civil war. He is feeling invincible. He's a uh, he's certainly first and foremost amongst, amongst the Romans. Vladimir Putin, I, I'm sure we're all rather hoping. So many commentators have been um, taken by surprise by this invasion of Ukraine and many are thinking he's gone a bit mad but do you see parallels between Julius Caesar in his secure position before he was knifed by his 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 senators as with Putin alone in the Kremlin? Well it's, it's hard to resist the the, the, the notion that I think you know, all the pundits would sort of agree I mean whether this punditry is worth anything is another matter but they they do tend to to, to see to say that if, if anybody moves out Putin, it'll be his, one of his friends or one of his close associates. It won't be uh, an, another sort of people's revolution. I mean, I've, I haven't heard a single person suggest that there's going to be a kind of uh, storm, you know, any kind of popular insurgency, a, a kind of storming of the Bastille or the, you know, the, you know, the, the removal of the Tsar um, or a kind of Lenin-like Operation. I mean, who knows? But but no, I haven't heard anybody suggest that. Everyone it's looking always, unlikely. Yeah. Everyone. It says that if anything d does happen, uh, it will be you know the defence minister or the interior minister or the head of the KGB or something like that. Now, we've got no idea whether that's true, but that was certainly obviously what had happened uh, in in in, in, Caesar, in in Caesar's case. That the people who were most worried about him, a were the people who of course knew him best. I mean, he was Caesar was killed by some people who were really quite sympathetic to him. I mean, they were, they were not, had not just fought with him uh, 
through Gaul and um, through, the, through the Civil War, they, they, they liked him, they respected him, but also because they knew his weaknesses. And I, I, you can imagine someone who perhaps would have been a very strong supporter of, of Putin, who might who said, "Look, yes, actually, I, you, you've done a really, lot of really good things, Vladimir, but I think you've now slightly lost it. And uh, I think it'd be a good idea if um, somebody else, you know, somebody else took over." And you can imagine if, if for any reason, again, it's totally implausible. I, I don't think anyone suggested this, but if you thought that uh, Vladimir Putin was not just dictator for life, which he does seem to have created himself unofficially that position no one seemed to think he's going anywhere uh, for some while um, if you thought that actually he wanted to hand over to one of his children then that would be then you then his friends and people many of whom would actually quite like to succeed him might feel well, not only I don't have a decent job or don't have as good a job as I'd like or I'm not as rich as I'd like to be uh, while, while Vladimir's here I'm not even going to get a chance afterwards because it's going to be somebody else and it's not going to be me so it's not a great it's not a clear parallel but you can see that that's the way in which um minds work when they're when they're very close to a dictator everybody has got both something to like about him otherwise they wouldn't be in the inner circle in the first place or and also something to really dislike about him either because they're not rich enough he's had an affair with their wife yeah he hasn't given them the land that they that they that he wanted, he's perhaps been too kind. One of Caesar's great problems for his supporters was that he was too generous to people who weren't his supporters. So they said things like, well, you know, I've marched all over Gaul and put up with an awful lot of trouble for you, Julius Caesar. Well, that guy who's been sitting at home sort of vaguely cozying up to your enemy, it seems to have done just as well out of you as, as I have. So um, lots of turbulence within the inner circle. and. Uh, we don't know whether there's any turbulence in the Putin inner circle or not. You might think that there probably would be at this point, but we've got no idea, of course. And there are parallels, I suppose, with every political assassination. I mean, in the in the ancient world, you had. I mean, the sexual element is always quite um, significant. You Philip II's assassination, yeah. um, and were Harmodius and Aristogeiton and yeah. yeah. Hipparchus. There's always a sexual element, isn't there? Well, there certainly can be, and there was um, a little bit of, in, in the case of, of, Caesar, of Caesar, Caesar too. Um, Servius Sulpicius Galba, who was one of the uh, one of the assassins, um, he um, was not at all pleased that uh, Caesar had been carrying on with his wife, and um, he might he might have joined he might have joined and uh, joined the, the the group anyway. But uh, that was that certainly didn't help. But and, and the and the Greeks um, did rather amplify and almost exaggerate, particularly the Athenians, their role as sort of tyrant uh, killers. So Harmodius and Aristogeiton were were um, people who who um, killed the, the uh, persistent tyrant, and, and there was great statues of them in, in Athens. And indeed, when Brutus, once he realised that he wasn't very popular in Italy. And uh, Brutus and Cassius had to go to Greece, and they ended up fighting a massive battle uh, at Philippi. Um, uh, Brutus stayed, stayed, went to Athens, and he was hailed as a sort of modern-day, you know, Harmodius and Aristogeiton, and, and they they put up a big statue to him. I mean, that was way that, that's how the Greeks liked to see them. The, the Athenians liked to see them as as these sort of tyrant killers. So they were particularly keen on on on, on Brutus. 
uh, for, for that reason. It, it didn't do Brutus much good, but th th they were keen on him. Anyway, the way that um, uh, Berezovsky um, saw himself as, as under threat, and of course he, he used another bit of the kind of Ru Russian historical mythology, which is the sort of Stalin's pursuit of Lenin, you know, who, who you know, Lenin escaped uh, and was eventually um, killed by with, with an ice pick. In, in Trotsky, Mexico. Trotsky. Trotsky, sorry, yeah, Trotsky, yeah, sorry. Um, so he, um, uh, he, he, he saw himself as a bit of a, you know, a bit of a Trotsky. I mean, he, he felt under, you know, that he was pursued. And to be honest, at that time, I thought he was a bit paranoid. To be, I mean, right. I mean, and he may have been paranoid. I just, you know, it, it's very hard to work out what was really going on. However, he, when we were talking away, and he was, um, he mentioned this guy Cassius Parmensis, who I have to say I had never heard of. Um, in fact, hardly anybody has ever heard of him. I mean, nobody until I did this book, I don't think anybody had really thought much about Cassius Parmensis. He's the least known of all the conspirators against, against Julius Caesar. And he was only important to Berezovsky was because he identified with this guy who felt that um, the, the big bad guys from back home were going, were, were, were after him. And I was a bit embarrassed to be honest, because I was in a way with the, with the kind of classicist and editor of the, editor of the time supposed to know about this stuff. And he was a sort of um, oligarch engineer uh, and uh, mathematician and, um, so, <laughs> so it was only when I, virtually only when I got, got home that I kind of, it was very difficult to find anything about Cassius Barmensis. I mean, he doesn't appear in any, you know, much in any of the, the books. I mean, you can look at a, you can look at a biography of, uh, of Caesar and not find it, not find it, it doesn't even appear in the index. Um, so, so, so yes, it was a, um, it was, if it hadn't been for Boris Berezovsky, I would, might not have, uh, Done this journey. Uh, this journey, unfortunately, uh, Boris Berezovsky's prescience didn't really help him in the wider world because uh, he was eventually found hanged in his bathroom in mm. in circumstances which uh, nobody nobody could really explain at the time. No, I don't know if the police are going back to that one because they're going back to some of the other killings, aren't or deaths? Who knows what? I don't know. Are. I think they're probably quite. Yeah. A, I mean, he, 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 if you remember, Boris had just lost a, a big lawsuit against uh, Roman Abramovich and uh, was not, you know, I think when multi-billionaires are down to their last billion, they start feeling a bit unhappy and poor. I mean, I think he was probably not feeling as quite as chipper as he ha had been before. He, he may well have killed himself. But on the other hand, that was before Salisbury and before a lot of those we know, we just don't know. Indeed, indeed. Now, Cassius Parmensis is, it's interesting that, um, you 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 use you you use him as the sort of main character because he he does seem sort of a little bit i doubt he doesn't he's not one of the first assassins to stick the knife in but he's no, sort of, yeah but he's he's slightly so from that respect he seems slightly detached but he's certainly um he 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 goes down fighting all the way really until until there's no more fighting left and he and and return and then goes yeah. to Athens doesn't he? I mean that's the important thing about him, which is true, which is interesting for all assassins and all assassinations, is that um, who really of of a group of assassins ever gets to find out what the effect of an assassination is, because Brutus and Cassius, the, the main architects of the uh, of the assassination 
died at Philippi. So you know, so so they they only saw about you know a couple of years of of the effect, and they didn't really. Um, they died most of their lives still thinking that they might have succeeded, and they, they lost the battle and they killed themselves. But you know, so they didn't really, they didn't realize the actual you know the actual result of their assassination would be that they would get the very hereditary um sort of um empire of the caesars that they've been trying they've been trying to stop whereas Pas parmensis although uh, uh, much less important at the time um a ended up sort of fighting for pretty well every for every cause apart from the winning one in the wars that followed um, but he also was, he, he lived a whole, you know, he lived to sort of 31, he, you know, he lived for 13 years. So he, he was the only assassin who saw the full uh, impact of, 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 of what they'd done, which, which I think is important because it's that whole question of, uh, you know, be careful of what you wish for and, um, and, and the difference between, you know, intentions and outcomes. He, he, was, he was the one who, Got the you know the best view of the outcome of an assassination, which was you know that on the whole assassinations don't do don't do very well. You know, that's a, yeah, not a good not a good move. And, and it was his he's an interesting fact character, isn't he? I mean, he was a, a, a pretty good naval commander and playwright. Well, we have to, a lot of this is we have to work our way through the rather small amount of evidence about this. But he was, he, you know, he lived in a time. He lived in in Parma. You know, a lot of people know Parma. You know, to now, the, you know, Parma ham and Parmes, Parmesan cheese, and uh, and even in those days, you know, it was a very fertile uh, area, quite wealthy. It wasn't actually in Italy; it was just outside Italy because on the way the borders were there. So they were kind of independent. They were very pro Caesar. Caesar would. As it would um, give the land around Parma to lots of his own veterans, so th they were solid military stock, who Caesar had looked after really well, and who were pro Caesar. And you might could think of them sort of rather sort of slightly provincial, probably by the standards of of, of, the, of the Romans. But that didn't stop um, them thinking of themselves as um, a bit of a philosopher, um, a bit of a poet, a bit of a playwright, because that's what the sort of civilized uh, Roman of, of of those days did. The, 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 it wasn't that they were kind of artists set apart. That was what it meant to be a kind of Roman. I mean, you know, Julius Caesar and Cicero, and um, almost all the big players, Brutus, all thought of themselves as philosophers and poets at one time or another. That was just what people were. But I think we, we can reckon that Parmensis was a bit more serious than that because. Uh, Horace refers to him, and he, so he did have an actual style. And we, you know, so we, yeah, yes, you, you're right. He he was a, a, an artist, gentleman, farmer. You might li might like to think um, who, when it came to actually uh, being a uh, a soldier, was really a sailor rather than a soldier. And, and he and he he played a, a big role in a lot of battles, which no one even thinks about now. I mean, no one even writes about them. I mean, many people said when I did this book, professional classicists and everybody is that, you know, you most books end with the end with the with the assassination of Caesar, that's the end of the Republic. And they tend to people's minds then to sort of get going again. Uh, after the Battle of Actium, you know, the in Antony and Cleopatra, which you know, but Actium such a damp squib, isn't it as a battle? 
yeah, it wasn't much of a battle, but that history, history you know, as, as you well know, has to choose dates. Yeah, has to choose yeah. boundaries and dates, and people historians argue about where the boundaries are. But in this particular case, a lot of people start their thinking and their writing with the Battle of Actium and the beginning of the empire, and they end it at the death of Julius Caesar and the end of the, end of the Republic. Well, well, my book describes a, 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 a very dramatic period eh, when um, Octavian, the future Emperor, Emperor Augustus, was hunting down every single one of the people he'd, um, uh, who, who he thought had killed his father, who had killed his father, uh, and was having to fight off enemies on his own side. Obviously, most obviously Mark, Mark Antony, but also Sextus Pompeius too. Now, Mark Antony is still famous because Shakespeare wrote a play about him. Sextus Pompeius isn't really famous at all because he wasn't so lucky, he got a bit part. Uh, but at the time, these were all people who might have done just as well as uh, the Emperor Augustus did. And, um, and Cassius Parmensis ended up fighting for all of them apart from the guy who actually won. And Cicero, the great orator who you've mentioned, he wasn't included in the, uh, in the assassination by the other, um, by, by uh, Cassius or Brutus. And he was, but he was a great enthusiast of the assassination afterwards. I just wonder if, if that's because it was successful. Um, but, but why didn't they uh, include him beforehand, do you think? Well, you know, Cicero was an intellectual and a sort of deal maker, and I don't think they would have trusted. Cicero would have talked a lot. He would have he got himself involved in those arguments I was talking about earlier as to exactly when the, you were justified in, in, in assassinating Caesar or not. But he was probably, from the point of view of the leaders, perhaps too good an arguer. So that, but what they didn't want was someone who was going to argue them out of, the, the, out of their own, own position. And, and he was they just didn't trust him they thought he would i mean the secrecy was obviously tremendously important it's amazing in a way that the secrecy was maintained we don't know how many people were involved in the plot could have been 30 40 we, just, we haven't got a clue but it was very public and the whole point about this assassination uh, was that it had to be public i mean if you really just wanted to get rid of caesar um it'd be more like a modern kind of assassination where you you know send a secret agent to um you know poison him in a back alley um, but the, the assassins that wouldn't have worked for the assassins they they wanted it to be public they wanted it to be clear that Cicero was that, that Caesar was repudiated in Parliament in the Senate by his own people so that everybody would have a story that showed how justified this was and and I think they with Cicero they probably thought that uh, that was just one risk too many in terms of uh, Cicero, uh, in terms of Caesar, finding out what was going to happen. Uh, now, in the in the wake of the assassination, there's this sort of scrawny teenager uh, who's in Greece on on his studies, and he, I, it's extraordinary, really, that he returns and and sort of transforms into this. Well, he certainly knows what he wants to do, doesn't he? Uh, I'm, I'm talking about Octavian here. Mm. Yes, um, and nobody took him seriously. Mark Antony, who was Caesar's sort of mucker and who'd been with Caesar throughout Gaul and was sort of um, definitely thought that once Caesar was gone, he would be the one who would sort of take over 
perhaps be a bit nicer than Caesar, been to a dip, slightly different kind of people, but be able to do a few deals, and uh, he would be the big cheese, and um, he would inherit all Caesar's um, Caesar's party and Caesar's popularity, and that, and that would all be great. But the, and when he heard that uh, Caesar had actually made, had made a will and had left uh, his titles and his resources to you know, an 18 year old boy who was in a sort of gap year in Athens, um, whose you know, mum and dad were not that keen. The last thing they wanted was they thought we'd already seen what happened to one Caesar. We're not going to let little Octavian go back and, uh, and, and get a dagger from an, another dagger from Mark Antony or some, some of his mates. So I don't think he got a great deal of encouragement, but he uh, he was determined that he was going to have his own, own his, get, you know, get what he would in, inherited or at least get the money anyway. So he, you know, he comes back, and I think he was just overwhelmed by the power of the Caesar name. Is it landing in Brindisium? Is that? Yeah, do you think that's when it... in Brindisium, and he very quickly uh, realised that that he had inherited, you know, he had inherited money and, and things, but actually, what he'd really inherited that he was now Caesar, and you had a, and the people who were really calling the shots, or, or you certainly had to do business with, were Caesar's armies and the people in the streets of Rome. And, and a lot of them, any Caesar would do. Yeah, uh, and um, he wasn't a particularly charismatic speaker. You know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't very physically very prepossessing. Uh, when it came to the big battles, he tended to sort of sit them out. Um, he, often, he was not very well. I mean, he had, many, he had many things that weren't going for him. But what he did have, and what um, his enemies never quite realized until it was too late, was the fact that his soldiers and the people thought that they were doing what they were doing for Caesar. And um, I think once Octavian came back and realized that he had this absolutely priceless asset, he was, you know, he's an extremely intelligent boy, became an extremely intelligent man. And he, he realized that this was something he really could do things with. And um, then everything ran on from there. But it was a, a, probably a shock to himself, I expect. It certainly was a shock to, uh, to, uh, uh, to everybody else, apart well, everybody else who nobody was talking to. I mean, nobody ever talked to the soldiers. We've got no records of them. Nobody ever talked to the people. No, no records of them. No, all the all the all the clever, smart people had a view uh, of what should happen and what would happen, which was totally different from what did happen and uh, and why. Uh, now, Mark Antony, who who. Was not involved. Obviously, he was a, a close ally of Caesar's, but he he um, he he in the way in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, he he sort of tries to play a kind of pragmatic line, which Octavian's return sort of disrupts, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he he takes the view, which is not necessarily a bad view, if if, if Octavian hadn't done what he did and been who he was. Which is that you had? Uh, in fact, he worked with Cicero to, to walk a very fine line. They wanted to get rid of the idea that there'd be a hereditary dictator, but they wanted everybody who had been promised jobs by Caesar and had promised money and promised advancement to get them. So he thought that you could you could sort of say that in one sense Caesar was legitimate. Otherwise, all the jobs that he promised you would be 
illegitimate. So he wanted that to be legitimate in one way and illegitimate in another way in the sense that he wanted to be a hereditary tyrant. And I think when it was really more Cicero working with Mark Antony that managed to produce a formula, rather, you know, sort of tricky formula that, that um, was able to sort of stay on, on that line, which kept everybody happy. Everybody got the jobs they wanted and they got rid of Caesar. And that probably would have worked uh, if it hadn't been that uh, Octavian came along and, uh, and, and knocked it off. Because as soon as Octavian came back and started saying he wanted vengeance against the assassins, then Antony, who previously had been for forgiving the assassins, really having an amnesty, was dragged, as often happens in politics, if you've got someone, as it were, kind of competing against, if you're a left-winger and you've got someone competing against you for, from the left, then you, you've got to move your position leftwards in order to, to win the primary or, or win, win the early election. Then you have to tap back to the centre in order to rule the government. Well, uh, uh, Antony was dragged towards the, 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 the uh, path of vengeance so that he and, and uh, Octavian could be together and satisfy Caesar's soldiers. And it was only when they'd won against the assassins and 50,000 people died from the cream of Roman society at Philippi. It's an extraordinary event. Um, only when they'd done that did they then fall out amongst themselves. And, uh, uh, and then there was a sort of another 10 years of war in which Cassius Parmensis played a part uh, to see who would actually end up top dog. So that's the end of part one. Coming up in part two, out next week, we go over a little bit more Roman history, and we also deal with Russians, Putin, and the situation with the Kremlin. And then we also cover other political leaders, in particular Tony Blair, because Peter, as I mentioned at the start, is actually one-on-one uh, -on -one and direct experience of Tony Blair during the, well, the difficult days of the Iraq war. And so... It's discussing assassination, Tony Blair and Peter Stothard, who was, one thing I didn't mention at the start, he was editor of the Times for 10 years. So, you know, this is an area that he has a, a, a really good knowledge of, and he's obviously thought about it a lot. So I really enjoyed talking with him. Before I go, if you can give me a review or, or uh, subscribe, I would be hugely grateful. And until part two, thank you and good night.